0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net.
1: In honor of the Word of God, would you guys just stand with me just for a moment? Sorry about that. And we're gonna look at verse one through 10, and we're just gonna read those together. I don't care what translation you're reading. I don't even care if it's English or not. We're gonna fill the room with the sound of the word of God being declared. So we're gonna read verses one through 10 and then for our study time today, we'll be focusing specifically on verse 10 as we look forward. So let's read this together. Ephesians chapter two, the word of God says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. Lord, we just pray that as we open this, Lord, that these words would just come alive. Your word tells us that the things of the spirit are only understood by the spirit, Lord, so it doesn't matter how eloquent someone might teach. It doesn't matter how creative we might look at the scriptures. It doesn't matter any of those things. If your spirit doesn't move, we're wasting our time here, Lord. And so I pray, God, that your spirit would move. That you would awaken hearts, minds, souls in this room. That you would relieve burdens and you encourage, Lord. Lord, in this room there are people who are tired. I pray you would give them energy to focus on what you have and not allow Satan to distract them. Lord, the word tells us that our our body, our very flesh is at war with the spirit. So, Lord, may, may even our energy not prevent us from understanding your word. Others in this room, Lord, are wrestling with sin and guilt and shame. Lord, it would be easy for Satan to take that very issue and cause them to be so focused on these failures that they miss your very word. I pray, Lord, that they would realize that no one's worthy to come before you by their own works, but that we come by the grace of Jesus. And I pray that they would hear these words, Lord, as the words that bring life, and that you would free us, Lord. Lord, others, whether it be distractions, maybe people fought on their way here this morning, Lord, whatever the case may be, I just ask God by your spirit that you would remove every barrier and distraction from everyone in this room, that we might focus on you, that we might receive your word, that our posture might be one of worship to you, and that your church might be edified and built up by your very words to us. So God, we pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my king, my rock my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you guys remember when we had the fire, we were supposed to have an outdoor service and we ended up having to cancel because of the smoke. You guys remember that? So that particular week, um, I was going to be gone anyway, and Pastor Sam was actually going to be teaching that Sunday in my stead. And Sam's sermon, if I'm not mistaken, was to cover Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And now, since that got bumped, we ended up canceling that service. We've now spent essentially four weeks going through what Sam was probably going to say in one. So my apologies for that. But I do believe that there's godly providence in all these things. I'm a person who doesn't believe in accidents Um, any Myers-Briggs ENFPs in the room, you know that if you're an ENFP, and if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it, but if you are, you don't see accidents in anything, you look for meaning in everything. Well, that's me, and I do believe that God does not do things coincidentally. I believe that God is sovereign and providential and works all things to his glory, amen? And so in this season, we've had the opportunity to really dive in and dissect these 10 verses on kind of a macro, or excuse me, a micro level. Really looking at what each of these means, and and I believe it's been a really fruitful time. We'll conclude this section here with just one verse today, verse ten. I'm going to try to get in and out of it as quickly as I can because we actually even have a video to go along with this that's about ten minutes long at the end. So I got to preach short today. Everybody say, Jeff, go short. I'm trying, people. I'm trying. Stop interrupting me. Okay, so so this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at Ephesians. 2 verses 10, but we always have to take a running start. And what we've seen as we've looked at Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 is really a breakdown of salvation. Who we were before Christ, what God has done for us, and today really who we are after Christ has miraculously worked in our life. And last week in particular, we looked specifically at the issue of salvation. That salvation comes by grace and grace alone that there is no other salvation outside of the grace and mercy of Jesus poured out on our life. There is no work that can be done to earn us favor with God. There is no other place than the gift of God, the grace of Jesus being given freely to us that we can find salvation. And so we looked at that and we saw we are saved, the passage tells us. It doesn't say one day you're gonna be saved, but by grace, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are currently, today, saved. That part of you is not a work in progress. It is not by grace, one day I'll be saved. But Paul says you have been saved by grace. Just as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And that's good news, amen? The second thing we looked at is that we are saved by grace alone. There's no other way to receive the mercy of Jesus than by grace, it is simply a gift. And then thirdly, we saw that grace is received through faith, that faith is the venue, the avenue, if you will, by which grace comes into our lives. That we experience the mercy of Jesus through faith. Faith itself does not save us because there are people that have faith in all sorts of things and their faith in those things might even be stronger than the average Christian's faith is in Jesus. And yet, we know for a fact that anyone whose faith is in anything other than Christ is on a dark and disturbing path but by faith we receive the mercy of Jesus. We put our faith in the work of Christ and we're, we're standing on by faith and saying, that is my coverage, that is my Lord, that is my Savior. When Jesus says I'm forgiven because of that work on the cross, I believe it and I am putting myself into that, I'm putting my faith in that, I am believing in that, and that is how the grace of God is, is realized, if you will, in the life of the believer. And so today we come to verse 10. Because when you think about it, man, we've been studying this stuff big time. Ever since we started the book of Ephesians, there's so many things we have picked apart, so much that God has done for us, and so sacrificial has God been in our lives. I mean, just consider what he went through to save the likes of us, the likes of us. And so to step back for just a moment and go, okay, I understand that he did this. I understand how he does it by grace. I understand the work he did to do it. It's the cross. I understand how we receive that grace is through faith. What I don't understand is this. Why? Like, why? Why does he go through so much effort? What's the, why me? Well, that's a short sermon. The answer to that's what? Anyone know? I don't know. That's the answer. I don't know. That will be a mystery that we will spend eternity looking into. The scripture even says that the angels themselves will be looking upon this thing in wonder going, I don't get it, have you seen this guy? He barely blows his own nose. I don't know how in the world, why? that'll be a mystery that we will look at for the rest of our lives. But I can say this, why I'm deserving, well I'm just not, but why has God saved me? Well there is a purpose to the salvation that God has given us and we see this in this text today. What is the Christian view about works? Think about it, we have looked at, really all the way back since starting the book of Galatians, probably a year ago, we have hammered the idea of legalism and works, have we not? Man is saved by grace, not by? Works do not save you. It's in Galatians, it's in Corinthians, it's in Romans, it's in Ephesians. It is clear through scripture that works do not save you. So so what should the Christian view then be of works? Well, some people would go, Works is clearly not part of salvation, not part of God's plan. Therefore, Christians should have nothing to do with works. There's an actual branch or segment, if you will, of Christianity that's referred to as antinomianism. That's the seminary word for it, antinomianism. And what, what it means is an antinomian is someone who says, look, effort, works, any of those things that we do. And by works, what we're talking about is just things done with the goal of obedience and service to God, whatever that could be from moral living to serving others, whatever that might be. And so an antinomian would say, since clearly works is not part of the program of God, it says grace by works, or grace not by works, so that no one would boast, clearly that it's not it. So therefore, anything that any believer does that involves work or effort is not part of the program of God, and we should not do those things. Um, And so that's that's a real, and not all that uncommon branch of Christianity, that work should have nothing to do with our faith. Effort should have nothing to do with our faith. I've had people even email me as we've gone through many of these texts and say, well, does that mean that the believer should do nothing? If works has nothing to do with our faith and we're saved by grace and it doesn't matter what we do, then does it matter what we do? Well, an antinomian would say, anything that involves effort is apart from grace and is therefore not part of the program of God. Well, I don't know know about that. I mean, let's take, for example, the words of Jesus himself. Matthew 7, verse 21. We've got a slide for this if you'd put it up. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Huh. Jesus. Have you read Paul? Because Jesus, it looks like you're saying that works saves. Paul's saying that we are not saved by works, but by grace alone. But then Jesus comes and says, No one's going to be in heaven unless they do the works of my Father? It definitely doesn't sound like antinomianism, that's for sure. And then right after that, Jesus tells that famous story that many of us know really well. If you've been in Sunday school for more than half an hour, probably in your life, you've heard it. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. What is the rock? Well, when Jesus is teaching that story, he says, The wise man is the person who hears and does my word. So the person who does the work of the Lord, not just hears it, not just believes it, but does it is the person whose house is built on the rock that survives the storm that that exists and is clearly given to show a picture of the follower of Jesus Christ. So how do those things work? And how would the antinomians who go, well, if work's not part of grace, then we can't have anything to do with it. Well, Martin Luther himself actually had a famous quote one time. He said, human nature's like a drunk guy trying to get on a horse. That the drunk guy trying to get on a horse inevitably, whoo, right off the other side, boom, falls. But then when he gets up, he's got to get back on the horse again. And now he's so careful not to slip off the other side that he ends up falling back off the other side. The idea being this, is that human nature has this uh, proclivity towards the pendulum effect, we're either way over here believing these things here or doing this over there, or if it's a bad experience or we don't believe it or something, then we swing way over here to another extreme. Billy Joel, thank you. Over here. Any Billy, I don't know why I go to extremes. Did I just show my age? I'm sorry. But um, but that's the idea. We tend to be one extreme or the or the other. And in reality, scripture, let's just be honest. Can I I'll just be really honest with some of you guys about this. Scripture is much more nuanced than that. Um, the legalist in general is always going to struggle with a lot of different things in Scripture because when you try to find really clear black and white lines in every single thing you do, there are areas that you come into where maybe it doesn't seem as clearly defined as you thought. Maybe it's not just all or nothing or one or the other. Maybe there's actually a balance to be held here. We've talked about this recently in great great length when we talked about the issues of election and predestination in Ephesians chapter 1 that you have two different schools of thought regarding Calvinism and Arminianism who have constantly fought for centuries over who's right about this opinion when scripture clearly is much more nuanced than just some absolutely well-defined, no problems, no questions kind of philosophy. And Paul himself who wrote the text, specifically uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is held up as the most defining text in all of scripture regarding Calvinism and Arminianism, At the very end of it, he even comes to the conclusion and says, Lord, your ways are beyond tracing out. In other words, I'm doing the best I can, but you're a mystery, God. And we can't understand every single thing. It's where faith even comes in and just trusting God and allowing God to speak into our own lives. And so what is the Christian view regarding works? How should those things be viewed? Well, in Ephesians 2, chapter 10, it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, no Bible verse is on an island. The first three rules of real estate are what? Location, location, location. If you've been tracking with me for any, any length of time, you guys probably know this one too. What are the first three rules of biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. Or another way of saying location, location, location. In Ephesians 2, chapter 10 has a specific, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 has a specific location. That location is right after verses eight and nine. And in Ephesians 2, verses eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing, this is the gift of God, not a result of, everybody say it, works. So he throws this concept out there. You've been saved by grace, it's not works. And then the very next verse, the issue of works comes up again. That's not accidental. That's not a coincidence, and that's not Paul forgetting what he just wrote. He comes in and then says, speaking of works, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good what? Works. We're not saved by works, but we're created in Christ or saved for works. This is a purpose statement. What this means is he's saying, look, God has saved us. God has saved us by grace. We've experienced his grace through faith, and we've been saved and reborn in Christ that we might do works. We have not been saved by works, but we have been saved for works, the work we do has not reborn, remade us. We have not been made new by our works, but when God has regenerated us, when he has changed us, when we've been born again, we have been born to works. We've been created in Christ that we might do this. Works is not the avenue to salvation, but hear me on this. Works, and again, we're defining works as anything done with the goal of obedience and service to Christ. Works is an inseparable part of the life of a believer, of a believer. The person who has been saved, works cannot be separated from their life. It is not an inseparable part of the avenue to salvation for the unbeliever, but works, service, obedience to God is an inseparable part of the person who has been saved. In fact, the book of James goes even further. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. To us, Martin Luther is a very important historical figure because Martin Luther was the guy who is credited for sort of kicking off what's known as the Reformation. Before Martin Luther, Christians, Catholics, Protestants, all one group with the Catholic Church being the one who was the head over all things. And the Catholic religion was strongly a works-based salvation. You must do this and this and this and this, and these are the things you must do to be saved. And the Catholics would never say, like Ephesians says, you are saved. The Catholics would say, make sure you're doing this that you may be saved. It's a completely different, it's really a completely different branch. And so Martin Luther came along and was just blown away by the grace of God. And he wrote his, I think it's 97 thesis, and he nails it to the wall of a church. You can read about the story. It's a historical thing. And the Reformation begins after that. Now, Martin Luther was so pro-grace and so resistant to the idea of works because of the time in which he lived and the systems he was fighting against that he could not stand the book of James. In fact, in many ways, he doubted whether it should even be in the Bible at all because he felt the book of James had too much emphasis on works rather than on the grace and mercy of God. And the reason that he believed this was because, well, let's put it up. James 2, verse 14 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Think about that. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, obviously, what's the intended answer that he's expecting out of that question? No. 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 Okay, so now you see, you feel like we have a problem. If Ephesians says we're only saved by grace, not works, and then he's saying here, faith—if you—if you're not doing any works—is your faith any good? No. Listen, they're not conflict. They're not in conflict whatsoever. James goes on to say this. Look at verse 17. It's here on the same slide, so also faith by itself does not have works. Is if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is the idea. James is not arguing against what Paul says with regards to salvation by grace. James would say the exact same thing, but what he does say is this. Anyone who has been saved will have works in their life. God has changed them and called them. And in following Jesus, your life is going to start looking significantly different than the life of the person who doesn't. And so the person, and what he's talking about here is a proclaimed faith. The person who comes and proclaims faith in Jesus, but their life represents none of these things. He's saying, and this is a hard, unpopular thing to say in our day for sure, but he's saying, that guy's not saved. He's not saved. He's proclaiming a faith that is not real internally. He's the guy that Jesus talks about when he says, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Because a follower of Jesus will follow Jesus. Even the name we've been given, Christians, means little Christ. And the idea was the people of the early church were people who were going and doing what Christ did. This is even what he told his disciples. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I'm going to leave, but you're going to do greater works even than I did. And he told them, you're going to carry my ministry to the ends of the earth. And so this is what they did. Instead of Jesus doing this alone, suddenly the church was birthed. And suddenly there were people running around all over the place that looked like Jesus. And this is what the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. In 2 Corinthians, it says that the Spirit of God works in our hearts to mold us and change us from glory to glory. Or in other words, from one degree of glory to another. What does that mean? What it means is it's changing us into the image of Christ step by step from one degree of glory to the other. So that in the end, we look like who? Jesus. Jesus. So for someone who has been genuinely saved by grace through faith, life changes. He doesn't just, listen, he doesn't just save you, he regenerates you. You've been changed. You've been born again. Now I'm not saying we all bounce off the mat when we get saved and suddenly we're Mother Teresa and writing scripture like Paul. It's a process. Everybody say it's a process. And when are we done? Heaven. Anyone in here dead? No? No? Then none of you are done yet, which is a good thing to just, that's a a good thing to say once in a while. Can we just be honest about that? Everybody just say this, I'm not done yet. There's no need for pride. There's no need for arrogance. There's no need for worship of others that we think is so much more spiritual than us. We are all in process, and the only one worthy of our worship is who? Jesus. Amen? So we're not done yet. It's a process, but it is a process, And so once you've been saved, your heart has been changed, you have been born again, and works is now inseparable. You've been made alive in Christ. James goes on to say, James 2, 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So you see that you can't have both. You can't have God saying that faith in Christ has made you alive in Christ, and at the same time have no works. Your life looks no different. You're doing none of that. You're not trying to follow, honor, or serve God in any way, but you're claiming to be alive. James would say, "No, such a non, such an unpopular. What's the word? Unpopular. That's the word. Such an unpopular message today. But this is what the scriptures clearly teach." that there is a difference between an actual saving faith and a merely proclaimed one. And we are warned, man, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think about it, take stock of your lives. Uh, Do you see that you have been changed? Now, Now what we tend to do is look internal and when we don't find perfection, we just start beating up on ourselves and go, clearly I'm not saved, that's not the idea. The idea is, is your love for God growing? Are you desiring to serve him more and more? Are you desiring to follow him more and more? Do you have love for God's people, love for God's word? Are you finding that that more and more, maybe not perfect like you should be, maybe not even on the schedule you would think you should be for yourself. We never are. But can you look at yourself before Christ and look at yourself now and say, there's something different though. Because if you can't, You've got, you've got some work to do. No, that's a bad way of saying it, isn't it? <laughs> work to do. You've got some thinking to do. You've got some work with God to do. You've gotta look at these things. This is why the scripture tells us over and over, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. Make sure you're worthy of the calling that you've been called. If you've been saved, your life looks different and works cannot be separated from the life of the believer. They don't save us, but once you're saved, they're there. As has been said before, faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. This is one of the the gifts God gives us even to test our faith and see where we are these things. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. James will go on to say, or says actually before chapter 2, he says in verse 1, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves to just proclaim faith and not have this thing being lived out in your life, you will fool yourselves. And I can tell you this much, as a pastor, that is my my greatest fear, bar none. I mean, it's not even close. My greatest fear for the people of Heritage Christian Fellowship is that on that day, they would say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus would say, I never knew you. That we might fill our lives with religious activity, that we might hear the word all the time, that we might do things all the time that look Christian, but we never knew him because our lives never were regenerate. But for the person who has been saved, man, your life changes. Jesus makes you alive. It's the life of Christ lived through you, we'll see clearly as we go into the book of Colossians. And listen, works or work in general has always been part of the plan of God. And we, when we talk about it, these are not... Popular sermons, no one goes, Oh, tell me what I'm supposed to be doing, because no one likes work. But listen, work has always been part of the plan of God. If you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1, we like to think, Oh, the world was created perfectly. It was perfect. Everything was amazing. And Adam was just in perfection and he just hung out in this tropical paradise and had fruit, except for that fruit, and everything was great. That's not true. Oh, it was perfect, as in without sin, but do you know it wasn't finished? Do you know that God created Eden unfinished? That he created Adam and said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to subdue the earth and fill it. He gave Adam a job. And he said, it's not done yet, but here's the work you're going to do. And and listen, today we look at that as, oh, I got saved just to do work. That's not how Adam felt. For Adam, it was an opportunity to participate in the ongoing work of God, to be able to walk with God, serve God, work with God, be part of God's work on earth. And it was beautiful. You go on further, look at when God created Israel. He speaks to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a great nation from you. And then what does he do? He says, This is what I'm going to do. He gives Israel a job. Through you will all the nations of the world be blessed. And throughout the Old Testament, there is over and over and over descriptions of what God called Israel to do, to serve the poor, to serve the orphan, to serve the alien, to speak of him, to glorify him, so that other people, the whole goal was that as Israel served God, worshipped God, and did, if you will, the work God had called Israel together to do, people would learn of him. You get into the New Testament, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, raises from the dead and he's about to ascend into heaven and now this new thing has been born. The church is here, we've been forgiven, we've got grace. It's just this incredible new program and what's the first thing he does? Hey guys, go ye therefore into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey my words. He gives us a job. He says, I didn't just save you so you can kick back and relax and go, I got my ticket punched and now I'm just going to hang out. He gave the church work. Now the problem is this. Work to us is bad because of what happened all the way back in Genesis. Work was a good thing that people were fulfilled in. It was an opportunity to connect with God in a way that, that is unlike anything that we've ever seen or experienced before. But when man sinned, When man went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when man rebelled against God, and they were trying to become like God instead, I'll set my agenda now. I'll know right or wrong. I'll know what I should do. I won't need to rely on God anymore. I won't need God to tell me what to do anymore. I'll do my own thing And sin and death entered into the world. Then in Genesis 3, God comes in and he says, look, this this is the ramifications of what you've just done. And one of the effects of sin, the effects of the fall, is suddenly he says to Adam, man, you're going to toil. Your work is going to be done by the sweat of your brow. The earth that I gave you to cultivate is suddenly going to fight against you where you were working in a garden once where everything was compliant with you and went along with my will as you fulfilled my will there, now the earth's gonna fight against you. Adam, now there's pestilence. Now you can't just plant a seed and watch it grow. Now there's bugs that are gonna be attacking it that you're gonna have to deal with. Now you're gonna have to protect my work against an enemy that's coming at it. Adam, there's gonna be thorns and thistles. There's gonna be other things around the work that you're doing that you're gonna to have to discern what is of me and what is not, and you're gonna to have to get rid of the things that aren't of me and focus on what I've called you to do. Adam, work's gonna push against you, and Adam, it's gonna be hard. You're gonna sweat. You're gonna to toil, and then we have all the other temptations like, Adam, you're gonna be tempted to work for your own glory because now you wanna be like me. Adam, you're gonna be tempted to work strictly for the paycheck. You're gonna be tempted to work strictly for the notoriety. And these are all the things you're gonna be drawn to. And so, work itself, hear me on this, work is not evil. Work will be in heaven. (sighs) Look, if you got your idea of heaven from the old Tom and Jerry cartoons where it's just a cat with a harp on a cloud, I started to say you're gonna be seriously disappointed, but actually you're not, you're gonna be so blessed. Because we're gonna to get to experience partnering with God in ruling, reigning, filling, being part of society. Think about it, even scripturally, when you go from Genesis to Revelation, the word starts with a garden, it ends with a city. God's a builder. God does things. And we will be part of the program of God with no more sin in the way. Things won't fight against us as they did once before. No more sweat of our brow. No more bad managers. No more sin in in the workplace. No more, why does he get paid more than me? No more, why do I do all the work and that guy doesn't? No more, I'm just plain tired. None of that will exist anymore and there will be a fulfillment in serving God that we cannot possibly imagine today. We get tastes of it for sure. And those of you that have found your calling and this is what I'm called to to serve God, many times you've experienced the joy that comes in doing what God's created you to do. Amen if you've done that before. But that's just that that's still tainted. Work in heaven will be glorious. But look, work itself is not evil. Work itself is not laborious, it is sin's effect on work that has made it so difficult. The reason we recoil when we even think about it, this is a great message for a Sunday, right, before people go back to work tomorrow, right? But the reason that we recoil from that is not because work is bad, it's because sin has tainted it just like it has creation and so many other things on Earth. Sin's ruined it. But God will renew those things, and so, We need to understand that. Work's part of the program of God. It's not in and of itself evil. Not to mention the fact that Jesus is not only our Savior, He's our Lord and King. And everybody wants Savior Jesus. Not too many people want Lord and King Jesus because He might make us do something. He might make us change something. But look, you you don't get to separate. He is. He's our Lord. He's our king. Work has always been part of the program of the people of God. Not how we become the people of God, but part of the program for the people of God. Are you guys all tracking with me? Say amen so I know we're on board. So, now, here's the thing. This text could be incredibly cumbersome and burdensome, couldn't it? Like right now, I could totally take this text and say, therefore, Do you guys realize only about 10% of the people at Heritage do 90% of the work here? We're dying for people in the kid's wing. We're dying for people in here and this and that and whatever and we don't have this and we don't have this so listen up, get to work. You bunch of lazy Christians, get to work. We could totally do that and people have done that. People have taken passages like this and made them incredibly burdensome. But, but also even beyond someone bullying you with the word of God in this way. If you're like me, I could read something like that. I don't need someone to make me feel bad about it. I can do that all on my own. And so I can start going, oh, I gotta get to work. I'm not doing enough. I can start to guilt myself. Am I even really saved? He's doing more than me. What should I be doing? And his work seems more important than mine. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. What will I do? And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you three things to think of out of this text really quickly that I hope will lift the spirits of you in this particular text. Because here's the thing, people will take this and they'll take it out of context and say, get to work, get to work, get to work, but that's not the point of the text. Context, context, context. The point of the text is worship. So you should read this and go, God, you're good. And if we take this text and go, get to work, no one goes out here going, God is so good. No one does that. So the point of the text must be something different. There must be something in there we're missing if we take that out of context. So here's three things for you. And the first one, I don't know that it's necessarily in this specific text, but, but it sort of isn't and is, and it's definitely in Timothy, and we'll get to it in some other areas. The first one is this. I want you to write this down. The first question that people can wrestle with with this is go, okay, I got to do work, but what work am I created to do? What's my role? You're telling me, Jeff, that a Christian does work, so what am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You've figured it out, you're preaching, great. What do I do? And there are people that I've seen, and I've done this in different areas of my life too, so I'm not pointing a finger here for sure, but I've seen so many people waste so much time and so many years and so many resources sitting back and doing the uber spiritual thing. God, I get it. I'm gonna work, show me what I am to do. I don't think he's showing me today, so I'll check in with you at devotions tomorrow morning. Lord, I'm gonna go play ball. See you later. And I'm, hey, Steve, what are you doing for the Lord? Well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for him to show me. I'm praying about it right now, and I'm waiting for God to show me what it is I'm supposed to do. Or I'll I'll get the Bible Ouija board out and do this, Uh, that, magic eight ball scripture reading, don't ever do that. Context, 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 right? But I'm just I'm just waiting. And and sometimes we can have this uber spiritual approach, like we're waiting for the hand of God to come down again and write exactly on our wall, Jeff, do this. But but here's here's let me tell you something. You know what the easiest way to find out what it is God's brought you into this earth to do is to do something. To just do something. Kind of that whole steer a ship that's parked versus a moving ship's a whole lot easier when the ship's actually moving. So let me say this, just do something. We were talking about this as a staff just this week as we were looking at this text together, and one of the things I was saying with those guys is, guys, I I think that we find God's will for our life not through the windshield but through the rearview mirror. I'm convinced that's how it works most of the time. Just as God guides us and we just say, okay, I'm just gonna step out in faith and I'm gonna do this and here's a need so I'm gonna jump in here and try some of this. And just as life goes on, there comes a day when for most of us, we happen to glance in the rearview mirror and we can see where we've been and we can see what God's done to guide and turn us and we go, that's why I'm here. That's my purpose. I would have never, not only would I have never guessed that God would have me in this kind of role before, I've bet my mother otherwise Because my mom, for years, when I was growing up, oh, I think you're going to be a preacher. I was like, do you even know me at all? Like, did you hear the words you just smacked me for come out of my mouth? Just, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way. There's no way. But God's like, ah, Jeff, that'd be true maybe if you were sovereign, but... And so I can look through my life and see little bitty things, even how I ended up in Oregon from North Carolina, 3,000 miles away, when I used to say, I will never leave North Carolina. I used to declare that. But now I can look in the rearview mirror of my life and I can see the little turns and circumstances that God used in my life to guide me and direct me to what I'm doing now. Now... What I'm doing now, there's, there's another, I probably should have included this on the list. Sometimes there can be a misunderstanding that when you find God's will for your life, you'll know because it's so easy to do. Not true. Was Christ's work on the cross, which he came here to do, easy? No. In fact, a lot of times, you're gonna know it's what God called you to do because it's hard. A lot of times, if things are going too easy, you might you might look around and go, maybe I'm just going with the flow instead of against it. But, but man, when you look back through your life and say, man, look what God has guided me to do. And at this particular point in my life, there are things about what I do. Everyone thinks that pastors just pray and teach once a week and we just fish the rest of the week. I so wish that was true. Someone even asked me recently, like, you're always posting all these fish pictures on Instagram. Do you fish every day? And I had to reveal my dirty little secret. I fish like once a week and save pictures from that day to scatter throughout the week is what that is. So that's one day being spread out along the Instagram account. The rest of my week, a lot of times, man, I come home, you can ask my wife, I come home frustrated sometimes, discouraged, sad. Sometimes we have days where we're dealing with all sorts of little things, and I go home at the end of the day, and I'm a guy who wants to be productive, and I can come home going, I worked all day long, but I look back, my to-do list looks exactly the same as it did a month ago. Like, it's Hard, but but here's what I can tell you for sure. I can't even imagine doing anything else. I get, there is a fulfillment that I get from what I do because I am in the vein God has called me to do so that no matter how bad the day is, it can be the worst day ever, days that I've stood beside people that I love as they died, I can still lay my head down on my pillow at night going, I still wouldn't trade it for the world because there's a fulfillment and joy in it. Does it make it easy? Makes it tolerable, maybe that's a better way of saying that. So so this is what I would say, serve God. How? Do something. Where? Well, start with the family. This is the family of God. Galatians tells us that we're to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. So if God has, through the rearview mirror of your life, somehow or another, brought you and landed you here, then praise God for his providence and sovereignty. Let's do something. Let's serve one another. Just do what? Anything. Children's wing. Cook some meals. Pray for people. Set up. Whatever the case may be. And then start going okay, here's where I am right now in life in general. As I look through the rearview mirror, God's put me here. I work at. I live on whatever street, whatever the place is. Here's where he brought me. How am I gonna serve God here today? And just do something. And I assure you, there will come a day you're gonna look in your rearview mirror and you're gonna go, that's why I'm here. That's the whole point. So number one, don't kill yourself going, I've gotta find the perfect thing. God would say, just walk with me. Just do some stuff. Let's just go serve people together and I'm gonna reveal my will for you, I assure you. God's not a galactic tease. It's like guys looking for wives, I'm just looking for the perfect one. That's Disney. Dude, guys, let's just be honest, we're gross, (laughs) right? Aren't we gross? Can you imagine if we had to marry women knowing one day they would lose their hair? Imagine that, poor ladies, they know this is coming and they marry us anyway. Can you imagine if you're looking at your pretty 20 year old girlfriend going, "I I think maybe I wanna marry her and then you're having to try to picture her bald. No guy ever would get married. But if you find a gal who's going to marry you, that's the one. (laughs) Problem solved. That's the one. But so too, listen, just serve God. Just do something. And watch how God guides and directs you. By the way, none of what I just said is, I don't know how doctrinally doctrinally solid that is. Um, So, uh, Talk to Jeremy. He does our counseling ministry. He'll help you sort through all that kind of stuff. Um, Number two, how is this work accomplished? All right, I got work to do, but Jeff, what do I got to do? What if I feel like I'm going to serve the poor? and Do I have to now start building a program and do this? And do I have the energy and I got to get some training? What am I going to do? And let me just take some pressure off your shoulders. What does the scripture say in verse 10? We are his workmanship, creating Christ for good's work, what? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What you're gonna find out when you follow God, as you look into the rearview mirror of your life, so many times, like I look back and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't plan this. I didn't have like a strategic plan for how I was gonna become a, a pastor and heritage would exist. And when I look back now though, definitely there were hard days of work all the time, but I look back and it's as if it just got thrown together for me. That's the honest truth. God prepares things for us. God, by his grace, saves us. Then God comes. Philippians says, put this text up. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As you follow him, he'll put the desire to follow. He'll put the energy. He's going to enable you by your spirit. God's the one who ultimately does all the work. And then he rewards us for it. This is the good God we serve. And so, so often, not only do we waste time going, I don't know what to do, but sometimes we waste time going, I don't know how to do it, and I would just say, just go do something. God's prepared it. God's gonna do a work. God's gonna move. If God's called you to something, he's going to enable you and empower you to do it. God is the one who does these things, and we just walk with him, amen? The third thing is this. So what's the ultimate work? What's the ultimate work? It it must be pastor, or elder maybe, Or or maybe evangelist or or Christian author, something like that. Those must be the more important ones probably because they're always doing God's stuff. But I work at 7-Eleven, so I can't pull that off maybe. So what am I going to do? And what's the ultimate work? It's the easiest question of them all. You know what the ultimate work is? You are. You are. Look what the text says. For we are his workmanship. Now there's a way to read that that's really wrong. Because again, we have a bad view of work. Work is difficult, hard, frustrating. And so we can look at this, God's doing a work in me. He'd rather take the weekend off, but he's gotta get up Monday morning and get the work done, so God's probably like me, snooze five times and then like, all right, off to Jeff. And Jeff doesn't work with God real well all the time. So God gets frustrated with Jeff. Jeff, seriously, again? Will you just hold still? Will you hold still? Jeff, what are you doing? Come on. I was trying to trim, <laughs> trying to trim hair out of my dog's back feet. And it was this constant. Over and over and over. And I lost all sanctification for about two minutes right there and wanted to kill the dog that I love so much. That's how God looks at me. Jeff, I got work to do. Be still. Stop it. Be still. Knock it off. Be still. Stop it. Oh, why did I pick you? (laughs) That is a view of work that is tainted by sin. God is not tainted by sin. When it says workmanship, the word there is poema. It's been translated poem. It's what we get the word poem for, but it's a much bigger word even than that. It means piece of art. Whether that be music, painting, drawing, poem. The scripture literally says, You are God's piece of art. Think of it in the context. The context of the passage is Paul talking about the work God's done in us to save us. And he says, you are his masterpiece. That is, you have been changed by grace, and now you're a child of God. That is the greatest work ever. You are his piece of art intended to be on display for all to see. But much more than that, think about it. An artist does not do art because he has to. None of them do that. In fact, sometimes we mock artists for wanting to do that professionally because we're like, well, you're just going to starve. You'll never eat. But they have to do it. Why? Because they love it. Because they love it. That is such a freeing thing to understand that the work God is doing in you, he does because he loves you. He delights in you, and you are a work of art that he is cultivating, that he is engraving, painting, scraping, whatever it is, and you can go, I don't know, man. You don't understand how messed up I am. You guys remember this guy? Can we put the picture up here? You guys remember this guy? Bob Ross, he's the who? The happy little painter. The happy little, I think Brent talked about him in a teaching just recently actually. Bob Ross, the happy little painter. God rest his soul, I don't, I think he's, he's RIP at this point. But um, Bob Ross used to be on PBS and stuff and he would be painting and he, it was like, he, he basically would hypnotize you, wouldn't he? Isn't it true? You would go flipping through the channels and if it was on, you could be like, the Super Bowl might be on and you're trying to get to channel five to get to the Super Bowl and Bob Ross is on channel eight and the remote just stops. And you would watch him and he would talk in that soft, soothing voice. I'm going to put a happy little tree right here. We're going to paint a little happy little tree. (laughs) And so, you young people, you should Google this. There's YouTube videos and they will knock you out. I'm telling you, they're amazing. But here's the other thing. Could the dude paint? Yeah. Yeah. But here's what would happen. And I challenge you to do this. You'll have fun doing it anyway. Go to YouTube. Watch him do some painting, and here's what he would do every single time. And my roommates and I in college used to love this. So he would be painting, he would do a painting like this, and there's this beautiful backdrop with the clouds and the sky and mountains, and it, it looked like a masterpiece already. And he's not done yet, and it would be like this blue, gray, all this stuff. And then he would dip his brush into like brown, some like dark color, and he would go, boom, and we would watch it and go, ah, he messed up. He just ruined the whole painting. Look at this blotch. And here's this gorgeous painting with these mountains and rocks, all this stuff. And this just blop of black right in the middle. And we say, Bob. <sighs> but he was amazing. He was an artist. He knew what he was doing. And in his mind, there was already an end result that he was just putting together for us to see. He had a statement. He used to say, We don't make mistakes, we just have happy little accidents. (laughs) That's literally what he used to say. We don't make mistakes, we just have happy little accidents. He would take that dart and he'd go blah, and you would think you just ruined it. And within two minutes, there was the most beautiful fir tree you had ever seen. That's what God does. We mess up. A lot of times we think we're on a good track, we think we got a good painting going, and then we do something black paint over everything, we've ruined it. But God says, I will make all things come together for good to those who love me. You are God's piece of work, art, masterpiece. And our tendency can be, I've gotta clean myself up before I serve God. I understand I've been saved by grace, but I got some issues I need to work out, and so what I need to do is put all these things on hold, I'll get myself together, and when I'm worthy of doing something to serve God, I'm in. Not true. It is God who will work to will and to do for your good pleasure. You will never be worthy of serving a king like Jesus, ever. And yet he calls us anyway. Guys, being a Christian means we serve God. We do work. We serve the church. We serve the community, we serve the world. We have to roll some sleeves up. Sometimes we're tired, sometimes it's hard. It requires commitment and involvement and all those things that we can't stand right now, but it's part of the deal. But the beauty of it is through all of these things, God's doing a work in you the whole time and you become the masterpiece of God. So Herod calling you to this. God's calling us to this. Serve God. Do works that bring glory to God, so that people can see us. As Matthew says, they would see our good works and glorify God in heaven. Find something. There's all sorts of needs in the church. Find them. Fill one. Try it out. Might turn out you like it. I would have never guessed that I would be starting out in children's ministry, and that's what the, the avenue that God would use to bring me into a pastorate. Would have never guessed. But you know, you know what happened? Serving in the kids wing became like like heir to someone who is suffocating. I would work all week struggling in a job I couldn't stand and found that I would go serve God by ministering to some first through third graders and it was joy. Do something. Serve God. But, but at the same time, listen, he's doing a work in you. And so understand something. And again, this, is, this goes back to that pendulum thing, right? Because we talk all the time. It's not about us. It's about God, Right? We are not God, he is. We don't exalt man, we exalt God. And there's ministries and teachings and teachers all over the place that everything's about man. You can do it, you're the man, this is why, God's all about you, and it's heresy. It's not true. God is the one to be exalted, no one else, amen? But he loves you. We may not be the point, but we are the object of his love. And it is not sinful to stop for a minute and just revel in the fact that God delights in us. That he says, Jeff, you're my piece of art. I'm pouring myself into this. I'm putting my own energies into this. I love you. No one does art because they have to. They do it because they want to and because they love it. Will you bow your heads and let's pray. God, will you set us free? Will you set us free from sin that keeps us too selfish to serve others or follow you? Will you set us free, Lord, from the lies and and laziness and all all the things that keep us from, from following you, Jesus? And will you set us free from that voice of the enemy that tells us that we don't have time, that we're not good enough? But more than anything, God, may we understand and be reminded again of the beauty of your gospel. That, Lord, we were a mess. There was no beautiful backdrop even to begin with. We were just a mess, Lord, but yet you chose us. You loved us. And, Lord, you sent your son to work to serve, Lord, that we might be saved. May we understand who we are in your identity, in your economy. May we understand that we are the apple of your eye, that, Lord, you delight in us, that you love us, that you call us now children sons, daughters, friends, and co-workers, and I pray, God, that we would, that every person here first would find you, or there's people in here that don't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would use, Lord, your spirit to invade their soul even now, and literally, Lord, bring them down. Help them to know your grace and mercy, Jesus. And then, Lord, help us to get beyond consumer Christianity that's so prevalent in the world today. Help us, Lord, not to keep our eyes upon ourselves. God, may we keep our eyes upon you, and may we find the joy of serving you. And may all this be just a sacrifice, Lord, of praise and worship and honor to a God who has been so, so good. In just a moment, we're going to be worshiping the Lord. If you don't know Jesus, today's the day. Today is the day of salvation. If you're in that camp where you go, I, I, I've always said it, but I'm, man, I'm not sure, Jeff. When you make me think about it, I'm just not sure. Please come. We're gonna take in this short video, and Sam's gonna lead us in worship. I'll be down front. Jeremy, I think you're in here. If he, Jeremy can come down front. There's some other guys and gals, huddle leaders, elders. If you guys would be in the back available, but listen to me, come to Jesus. He loves you. He wants to change you not just make you better. He wants you to be reborn. And he wants you to be in eternity with him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I don't really see a a masterpiece, you know? I mean, maybe a Picasso. It's like, (laughs) but I want to be his masterpiece. I want to be everything He created me to be. And so I go to Him in prayer and I say, Dear Heavenly Father, do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of Your Son. Make me Your masterpiece. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
2: Hi. Whoa, who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. You're not God. No, I am. You said the prayer. That's how it works. <laughs> okay, okay. If you're God, then uh, make it snow in here. You know what? I really don't want to make it snow in here because it'd get kind of yucky.
0: Yeah, you're not God.
2: Why do you say that?
0: God wouldn't say yucky.
2: I do. It's a Greek word. Oh.
0: Okay, okay. Um, If you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say?
2: Lamentations is only five chapters. It's a very short book. Oh. Why was it so short? I was tired of lamenting. Oh.
0: Okay, okay. If you're God, who's going to win the World Series this year?
2: I'm really not into playing games. Why are you so much into playing games? You are God. Well, gave it away.
0: You answered my question with a
2: question. I did? <laughs> yeah, I do that. Don't I? I did it again. <laughs> Step right up, here we go. Okay. All right. Hey, what are we doing? I'm gonna make you into my original masterpiece. This is the process. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Wait, wait, what are these about? These are the tools I'm gonna use to make you into my original masterpiece. Okay. Yeah.
0: Hang on. Yeah.
2: I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Step right up, here we go. Okay. Oh, hey, on. but you chisel
0: away, just be prepared.
2: You have listened to so many voices for far too long that were not from me. And you have totally bought into the lie, haven't you? You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night after you've done the dance to get the hug, you think you're junk. Listen to me. I don't take time to make junk. How can I show you that my love for you stretches as far as the east to the west? That How can I show you that my love for you has no end? I know. Reach your back pocket. What? Reach your back pocket. Why? Are you arguing with me? Reach your back pocket. Oh, God. Yes?
0: I just meant, God, I'll do that right now.
2: You're just saying my name in vain.
0: Come on. It's, it's a name. It's a saying.
2: It's a name above all names.
0: is God's original masterpiece.
2: Yes, you are.
0: And so are you. God doesn't make junk. You
2: are an original masterpiece.